I invite you now to turn your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul's second letter to Timothy chapter 1. And this evening we'll be looking at verses 11 and 12 as we continue to savor these verses together, taking our time wading through them. Um, But to give us the context of this this section, not as much as I'd even like, but not going to do it all for the sake of time, I'm going to read verses 8 through 12 for us, even though we'll just be looking at verses 11 and 12 this evening. So let me read those verses for us, reminding you as always, brothers and sisters, this is the word of the living God. Therefore... Do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher which is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Beloved of God, the word of the Lord does not return to him empty, but it accomplishes all that he desires. So let's ask him now, to achieve the purpose for which he sends it this evening. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that you, along with the Son and the Spirit, have searched us and known us as your people. You know when we sit down and when we rise up, and you discern our thoughts from afar. Such knowledge is too wonderful for us, Lord. It is too high and we cannot attain it. And so we pray, knowing how well you know us, that if there is any grievous way in us, that you would graciously grant to us repentance, that we would turn from our sin unto you. By your Spirit, lead us in the way everlasting, we pray. And teach us this evening your thoughts for they are precious to us, and we long to know you more. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, as we've been looking at this second letter of Paul to Timothy, we've been reminded again and again that this is, in many ways, Paul's swan song. He knows that his life is coming to a close. He knows that he is soon to depart and go and be with the Lord. And he knows that that means then that he is, is in many ways, passing on the banner of gospel ministry from himself to Timothy, his young protege. And he's aware that Timothy is going to face all kinds of temptations and trials and sufferings. And so he's been calling Timothy to fidelity, to faithfulness to the Lord, to persevere in gospel ministry. And and what we're going to see tonight is that that Paul really 
holds himself out here as an example and a model to Timothy of how God has graciously upheld him and kept him through all that he suffered, through, through all that God has called him to endure. It's been by God's grace that Paul has been able to do that. And Paul is saying, Timothy, the Lord is going to do the same thing by his grace in you as well. Because he's called you to gospel ministry as well. And so Paul highlights in these two verses two realities that God has brought about in him. And that those two realities are really going to serve as our outline for tonight. First of all, if you look at verse 11, you can see the reality that God worked in his life of Paul's appointment. The fact that Paul was appointed by God, he says, to be a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. And that's meant to be an encouragement to Timothy because he's also been appointed to gospel ministry. And then second of all, in verse 12, we're going to see the reality that God brought about in Paul with Paul's convictions. We're going to look at some of Paul's convictions, not all of his convictions. That would take way too long. But in verse 12, by my counting, we have three convictions that Paul lays out, that, that he holds to by God's grace, and he wants Timothy to hold to as well. And here's the thing, brothers and sisters, these truths are not just true for Paul. They weren't just true for Timothy. They're, they're true for us as the church, as God's people as well. And so by his grace, may we understand rightly his word and then fellowship with him and with one another rightly in light of these realities. Only he can do that by his grace, and we trust that he will as we walk through these two verses this evening. So let's look first then at verse 11 and Paul's appointment. Look there with me again. For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher. So Paul starts out by saying, I was appointed. And who's the one that did this appointing? Well, we don't have to guess. We, we know very clearly that it's God who appointed Paul to be a preacher and a teacher and an apostle. We know that from a place like Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. Listen to what Paul says there. He says, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through whom? Through Christ Jesus and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Clear enough, right? Who called Paul? Who appointed Paul to this? It was God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who appointed him. He's the one who gave him this calling. And what was God, what has God appointed Paul to be? Well, he says in the rest of verse 11, again, a preacher and apostle and a teacher. It's really interesting because this is the same triad of offices or callings that Paul mentions in his first letter to Timothy, if you remember our study through that, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 7. He says to Timothy there, For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. 
And so Paul's saying, this is what I've been called to, a preacher, apostle, and a teacher. So let's look at each one of those very briefly. First of all, he says, I've, I've been called to be a preacher. Literally in the Greek, he's been called to be a herald, to proclaim the best news that has ever been announced. And what is that good news? That good news is of the Lord Jesus Christ. That the Father in love, in accord with his eternal decree, sent his Son, the second person of the Trinity, to take on flesh, assume a human body and soul for us and for our salvation, fulfilling all righteousness, living the life that we as human beings failed to live. We have not lived up to what God has called us to as human beings made in his image, and so we're deserving of his wrath. Jesus lives that perfect life in our place, and that righteousness of Christ is then credited to us. And then Jesus went to the cross, and he took the punishment that we deserve for our sins before a just and holy God. He paid that penalty in full. So that there's no penalty remaining for you and for I. Then he was buried. After three days rose from the dead, ascended to the Father's right hand, sent the Holy Spirit so that all that Jesus accomplished is applied to us. And we as his people are waiting for that day when he will return. Paul says, I have been called to herald and proclaim that good news. The greatest of good news is that have ever been announced. He then goes on to say, I'm not only called to be a preacher, but I'm called to be an apostle. I was appointed to be um, a sent one, a messenger of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is a, a unique office or calling that he has. This was unique to that time period when we actually had apostles. And, and so what this means is that he was directly called by Jesus. You remember that on the road to Damascus. Saul wasn't looking for Christ. Christ came and found him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then the Lord Jesus Christ shared the good news of what he came to do with Paul directly. And then inspired Paul by his Holy Spirit to write most of the New Testament. So that Paul, along with the rest of the apostles and the prophets, are the foundation upon which the church is built. Ephesians 2.20. And so Paul is saying, I, I, I had this unique call, which is extraordinary and it's temporary. I think it's really important that I point that out to you because there's still people running around claiming to be apostles. And you need to hear very clearly, there is no more need for apostles anymore today. And many of you are shaking your head, yes, I'm glad to know that you know that. We don't need apostles anymore because the canon of Scripture is closed. So we're not receiving new revelation, so we're, we keep tacking on to the ends of our Bible. I think it's the reason men will say, oh, I'm an apostle. They're trying to grasp for more authority and power than they actually have. And so Paul is saying, I was given this unique calling to be an apostle. And then lastly, he says that he was called to be a teacher. And we're given a little bit more insight into that in 1 Timothy 2, verse 7, where he says, I was called to be a teacher to the Gentiles, to teach to them the good news, that, that, that they did not have at their disposal up until this time. And so I am I'm teaching the gospel to them. I'm teaching 
the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ to them. And so Paul is saying, this is what I've been called to. This is what I've been appointed to. And we miss this in the Greek, but I'm sorry, we miss this in the English. If you miss it in the Greek, you're not doing it right. But in the Greek, the I there in verse 11, it's emphatic. By the way, the I in 1 Timothy 2.7 is also emphatic. And so what Paul is communicating with that is he's saying, can you believe the grace of God? That he has appointed one such as me, one who was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor of Christ and his church. He's graciously called one like me to herald his good news and to be directly chosen by him, write most of the New Testament and teach the Gentiles. Behold the grace of God. As we sang this morning, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind but now I see. And this grace is something that (laughs) we need to spend a little time applying to ourselves. So I want to apply this two two primary ways. First of all, I want to apply this to gospel ministers. I want to apply it to gospel ministers because we cannot lose sight of the fact, brothers, that God is the one who has appointed us to be gospel ministers. And I think it's so important that we don't lose sight of that, which we're sometimes tempted to do in gospel ministry, because if, if you lose sight of that, you, you're, you fall prey to all kinds of temptations. And we don't have enough time to go through all of the temptations, but let me just mention a couple of them. One of the temptations is that you'll think you have the freedom, the, the luxury, if you will, the ability to just walk away from that ministry. Maybe that, it gets too difficult. Maybe it's too hard. The, the cost is too much. And so you think, well, I, I chose to do this, so I'm just going to change my mind and choose to not do this anymore. And you're not at liberty to do that. You didn't appoint yourself to this. God appointed you to this. Now, let me make a distinction. He didn't point you directly. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't directly appoint us the way he did Paul. But he does, through the elders, the leaders of the church, he appoints gospel ministers. And so you're not at liberty to just walk away from that. But if you think you chose gospel ministry and God didn't appoint you to it, you're open to that temptation. Or you're also open to the temptation to constantly question whether or not you should really be a gospel minister. Did I make the right choice? Did I choose wisely? If it's all up to you, you're going to be wishy-washy in that. You're going to be looking at yourself thinking, I'm not sufficient for these things, which in and of yourself you're not. But when you're appointed by God, he makes you sufficient by his Holy Spirit. And so as gospel ministers, we have to remember that. We have to rest in the reality that he has appointed us through the means of the leaders that he's raised up in the church. And we also need to remind ourselves very briefly to what end we've been appointed as gospel ministers. It's to proclaim Christ. And so we need to be ready to do that in season and out of season. We must always be ready to announce the good news of what the Son of God has done. Now, I also want to apply this to the church in general, uh, to, to the rest of you here, which is the majority of you. I've got two questions for you to 
reflect on a bit here in light of this passage. First of all, do you see your gospel ministers as appointed by God? And if the answer to that question is no, then repent and change your mind because the scriptures are abundantly clear that they have been. Now, if you do acknowledge that they have been appointed by God, then first of all, thank God for that. (laughs) Thank God that, that Christ in his love and care and concern for you individually and corporately He has raised up and qualified and equipped men to serve in the church in that way. Thank Christ that he does that and that he will do that, he says, until he returns. He's building his church. And so thank him for these gospel ministers that he's appointed. Second of all, since your gospel ministers are appointed by God, then treat them accordingly. And I kind of feel like I'm preaching to the choir a little bit here, so maybe the guys will critique me later. That, what was that an, uh, application point? Well, this is a way for me to commend you, Sovereign Grace. You do a wonderful job of honoring us as your gospel ministers. You, you follow our lead. You look to us for wisdom. You take really good care of us. Your love for us is demonstrable. It's tangible. We know that it's there. We know that you've got our backs as it were. And why do you do this? You, you don't do this because in and of ourselves we're deserving of those things. It's not because you think, man, they're just such swell guys. No, I know, it's that, I know that you know it's because Christ has appointed us as the means through which he proclaims the good news of who he is and what he's done and what he's yet to do when he comes again, that you honor us by following us and listening to us and caring for us. And so I thank God for that. And one final question for you, in light of the fact that God appoints your gospel ministers, do you expect them to proclaim Christ to you? Is that the expectation? Because it should be. Literally, what is a gospel minister? It's a servant minister of the gospel, the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so your expectation should be that that when we meet with you or we preach publicly, that we are bringing not only the word of God to bear upon you, the truths of scripture, but the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ as well to bear upon you, to bear upon your situation. We are to minister Christ to you. And how are we to do that? By pointing you to Christ over and over and over again year after year, month after month, week after week, day after day, moment by moment, as we preach and as we pray and as we sing and as we counsel and as we administer the sacraments and as we visit you in your homes. In all of this, you should see paraded before you Christ for you, Christ for you, Christ for you. Your expectation and demand should be sirs, we would see Jesus because that's why he's appointed you. And so you should have that expectation of that, of that expectation of us. And may God continue to sustain us so that we do that. So do you see, we're just scratching the surface on some of the implications of this. The implications of not just the fact that Paul was appointed by God, but that your gospel ministers are appointed by God as well. Well, we don't have enough time to go into 
everything else there. But now that we've looked at Paul's appointment, let's look secondly at Paul's convictions in verse 12. Paul's convictions. And before I even read verse 12, I just want to highlight for you, he has three convictions here that he relays to us. And so let's keep that in mind as we read verse 12 here, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Again, Paul is is modeling for Timothy here. These are the convictions that have driven my ministry, and Timothy, I want them to be your convictions as well. And so what are they? First of all, he says he's convinced, he's convicted that he suffers because of his appointment to serve the gospel. He says, Timothy, I know you, you are fully well aware of everything that's going on in my life. You know that I'm imprisoned. You know that, that those who are close to me and have supported me in gospel ministry, many of them have fallen away. And, and you know that my impending execution, my impending death, is, is right around the corner. But here's what I want you to know. I'm experiencing all of these sufferings because I've been appointed as a preacher and an apostle and a teacher to proclaim the good news. And so this is why I'm experiencing what I'm experiencing, why I'm suffering as I am. It's because of that appointment by God. And remember, back in verse 8, Paul commanded Timothy, this is in part why I read this verse earlier, to suffer in the same way that Paul has, to be willing to share in suffering for the gospel, to not slink away from being faithful to Christ in order to avoid suffering, because that temptation is real, to not fear man so that you disobey God, but rather to fear God even through your fear of man so that you obey him. And what we see here is that Paul isn't commanding Timothy to do anything that he hasn't done himself. Paul is a model for how Timothy ought to suffer since Timothy is also called to be a preacher and a teacher under the tutelage of his apostle. So his first conviction, Paul's first conviction, is that he's suffering because of this gospel appointment. And secondly, he says that he's not ashamed to suffer because he knows He knows whom he's believed. Now again, just like the previous conviction, Paul commanded Timothy, again back in verse 8, to not be ashamed. And Paul is now saying, I'm 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 commanding you to not be ashamed. And Timothy, by the way, I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of what I'm suffering. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And he's not ashamed of it because he knows he's done nothing worthy of imprisonment or death. He's simply suffering all of this because of how much the world hates Christ and hates the gospel and hates Christ's followers. And so then rather than being ashamed of suffering with Christ, what is Paul's attitude? He's proud of it. Like the apostles before him, he counts it an honor to suffer with Christ, in part because he knows it's proof that he actually belongs to Christ, because he's suffering for Christ as Jesus promised, and as Christ himself suffered. It's interesting. Um, Paul says that uh, he's, he's not ashamed to suffer because he knows whom he's believed. 
And that word there, we miss this again in the English, but in the Greek, that word believed there is in the perfect tense. And so what Paul is saying is, I've, I've not only believed in him in the past, I have, but, but I'm still believing in him. I'm believing in him right now. And, and notice that the emphasis here is on whom he's believing. Who is he believing in? He's believing in God. He's believing in the God who created everything out of nothing. Behold the power of God. He creates everything by simply speaking it into existence. And he's the sovereign Lord who works all things for our good and for his glory. And he's our gracious redeemer who loved us enough to send his only begotten son to die for us and to live for us that we might be reconciled to him. He is the God who is immortal, invisible, the only wise God, even the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Paul says, I know him. I know who he is and I believe him. And so in light of who God is, Paul says, I am not ashamed. Because if this is who God is, <laughs> then, then why should I be ashamed to stand for him? Because if he approves of me, why should I fear the disapproval of man? Why should I fear the, the creation, man, rather than the creator? That's, that's ridiculous. And why should I fear the clay, <laughs> man, rather than fearing the potter who has the clay at his disposal to mold them and shape them and form them and dispose of them however he will. Do you get the idea? Paul's saying, I know whom I believed. I know who God is. And so when we rightly know God and trust him, we won't fear man. We won't fear man so that we, we, we fall away. We won't ultimately fear man. Because how can you be ashamed when man wrongly disapproves of your faithfulness to God? If God is for you, who can ultimately be against you? It doesn't matter who your enemies are if your friend is God. And so this is Paul's conviction. He's suffering because of his gospel appointment. He's not ashamed because he knows who God is, who he's entrusted himself to. And then thirdly, and closely connected to the second conviction, he's convinced that God will powerfully guard him. Now, right out of the gate, I've got to point out to you, and this won't come as a surprise to most of you, because we discussed this in our Advent series in the morning service uh, weeks ago when Chad covered this passage um, in our Advent series, and he pointed out the fact that this, this translation here in the ESV is not helpful. As a matter of fact, I think the ESV knows that its translation here isn't helpful because it gives you in the footnotes the, the proper translation. What I have entrusted to him, or literally in the Greek, my deposit. In other words, it's not about what God has entrusted to Paul. It's about what, God, what Paul has entrusted to God. And, and what is it that Paul has entrusted to God? Himself. His entire person body and soul, he has entrusted to God. And so he says, because I know who he is, because I know the one whom I believe and have entrusted myself to him, I know that he will keep me and he will guard me. And so since Paul has entrusted himself to God, he knows 
go back to the, the second conviction. He knows who God is, and so he knows that God will keep him because he knows God's character. He knows that his power is greater than anyone else's power. It's infinite. No one really has power in comparison to God's power. And he knows that God keeps all of his promises. And so that's why Paul has entrusted himself to God. He's entrusted himself to God even as, do you remember, Jesus did on the cross. When he, he's breathing his last in Luke 23, 46, Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Because there is no greater refuge than our God. There's no greater refuge than Jesus' Father. And so he entrusts his spirit to him. Stephen, following in Christ's footsteps, says the exact same thing in Acts 7, verse 59. Interestingly enough, when who is overseeing his stoning? Paul, then Saul. And Stephen looks up into the heavens and sees Christ standing at the right hand of the Father. And what does he say? Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He's entrusting himself to Christ. And Paul's saying that he now entrusts himself to God the way that Jesus did and Stephen did and the way that Peter commands us to in 1 Peter 4.19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. You see, Paul is saying that he doesn't concern himself with his sufferings because he's entrusted himself to God. And so God will care for him and keep him and guard him because he's got no other refuge to turn to. When you have God as your refuge, what other refuge is there? And so since he knows him, he can trust him because he alone can bear the weight of his eternal soul because he was created for him. And so brothers and sisters, we're called to do the same. To cast our cares upon our God because he cares for us. Because as Paul says elsewhere in Romans 8.38, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. He will powerfully keep us. And you know part of the reason why we can know, Chad talked about this a little bit this morning, why we can know that God will keep us. In part we can know that God will keep us because Jesus is praying for us. How do we know Jesus is praying for us? Well, do you remember when Jesus foretells Peter's denial of Jesus three times in Luke 22? What does he tell Peter? He says, Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And guess what? Peter's faith didn't fail. Did his faith falter? Was it weak? Yes. Did he sin? Yes. But Christ then restored him, pursued him, and, and he repented. And so Christ kept him. Christ's prayer was answered. And so we can have every confidence that Jesus is praying that same prayer for us. And here's the thing. Will the Father deny the Son any request that he brings before him? No. That's why Jesus can say in John 10, 29, that since the Father has given us to him, to Jesus... And since the Father is greater than all, more powerful than all, no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand because he keeps us. And how long does he keep us? Well, Paul actually answers that question. Look at the tail end of verse 12. Until 
that day. Until what day? Until the day when Christ returns. You see, Paul knows that he will be vindicated when Jesus comes back again. And on that day, Paul says in 2 Timothy 4 verse 8, There is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who love his appearing. And Paul wants Timothy to do the same thing. To not only be faithful by the power of God to the gospel and to suffer for the gospel, but to know beyond a shadow of a doubt, and this is the only way that he's going to be able to do it, that God is with Timothy and for Timothy and will keep Timothy and vindicate him at the end of all things when Christ returns. And oh, brothers and sisters, do you understand that these realities, again, are not just for Paul and they're not just for Timothy but they're for us. And that should take our breath away. As his people, as the church, God has appointed us to make the gospel known, to declare from sea to shining sea, from one end of the earth to the other, the good news of his son. That's why we exist as a church. That's why we're still here. And God could do it in a myriad of other ways, and yet he says, I'm going to use you as the means to make that gospel known. So let's be about that great privilege of declaring this gospel. And as his people, we can know that as we carry forth this gospel, we will suffer. That's a certainty. Because the flesh and the world and the devil hate the gospel. And so they're aligned against it, but we do not need to be ashamed. Why? Because we know him. We know who he is. We know his character. We know his power. We know our glorious God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And since we know who he is, and by his grace we have entrusted ourselves to him, we can know that he will keep us. He will guard us. Though we fear our faith will fail, as we often sing, he will hold us fast. He's the one who moved us in the first place to entrust ourselves to him, and he's the one who will cause us to persevere until the end. And so we will, until that great day when Christ returns to make all things new and we are vindicated in the sight of all as we are glorified with him. What a glorious God, what a glorious Savior. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.